The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Welcome to the show today. I'm so glad that you can join me for the conversation. Today, we're going to spend some time in a mystical world where concepts of life, death, and the afterlife are explored through the ideas of our heroine, Bella Ransom. Tales of the Blue Panda by Maggie Whitehouse will transport you through space and time in a magical story that I think deserves to be on the big screen. This is very colorful. Maggie Whitehouse is very colorful. She's such an interesting person. She's an independent minister, a stand-up comedian, workshop leader on mysticism and the kingdom of heaven, and author of 17 books and counting, including the latest one that we're going to talk about today, Tales of the Blue Panda. And she's an expert on Bible metaphysics and women in the Bible, and is also an expert on the ancient teaching of Kabbalah. She's a former BBC and independent radio presenter who currently hosts a podcast with shamanic practitioner Susie Crockford called Wise Women, the Vicar and the Witch, available on your favorite podcast platform. And she joins us today from her home in Devon, and I'm so happy that she's able to be here. Welcome to the show, Maggie. Thank you, Diane. It's lovely to be here. I'm sitting looking out over the beauties of Dartmoor, the moorland in Devon. It's it's dusk just as we're recording this. And it's just so lovely to be able to be in Devon and talk to you the other side of the Atlantic. I never, ever get tired of the glory of what the internet can do. Isn't it amazing? I love that, that we can make this connection. And I also follow you on social media, and I love when you share little slices of your life there in Devon. It just sounds so magical. And pictures of your doggies and... It I is just, paradise I, I here. The... It really is paradise. <laughs> I have to say it's paradise. And given the crazy year we've been going through, through, we're so blessed that we live in a rural community where everybody looks out for everybody else. And we've been swapping seeds to grow in our vegetable gardens and swapping jigsaws very carefully, you know, that kind of thing. But it's a real old fashioned community, which has, it has its, uh, it has its issues as well, but generally it's such a beautiful place and the people here are gentle and open and they love nature. And that's one of the things that's really important to me. Well, it sounds really magical and beautiful. And once this craziness is over, <laughs> my dream of coming to the UK, I've never been to England. Wow. Um, and I would love to go there. I'd love to see Glastonbury and all the stuff from the magical stories I read as a kid and King Arthur and all of that. So yeah, <laughs> well, I, I love it. And I love to... Lovely. We're halfway oh. between Glastonbury and Tintagel, which is said to be the castle in which King Arthur was conceived. And we have our own stone circles. Uh, we have Neolithic and Bronze Age and Iron Age structures and huts up on the moor. It really is. And all the churches are ancient. They're on the ley lines. We actually live on the crossing of what's known as the Michael and the Mary line, which are, they're sort of 
uh, links to the chakras in the land. I think that's probably the best way of explaining them. And, and there are so many sacred places around here. It is incredible. It's ancient sacred. It got adopted by Christianity, but it's it's deeper than that. It's older and it's so wise here. It's extraordinary. Yes. I mean, just the information I'm sure that you kind of gather just being there, you know, by osmosis in a sense, must be so amazing. And and it's interesting, you know, about about the book, and I do wanna I do wanna jump into that as well, you know, because just just you describing where you are, you know, kind of having your foot in in the mystical and the modern, you yes. know, is is so interesting. And and that theme kind of run runs through the book as well, you know, with the um the concepts that you share in the book. So I just want to, it's so funny. So when I got the um, manuscript to read Tales of the Blue Panda, I'm like, what is that? I actually, I looked up, I Googled what a blue panda actually is. And in the book, you explain that it's a car. <laughs> so the blue panda is a fiat. It's a fiat. It's an old fiat dating back to the 1990s. And so much of this book is based on my life. I do say to people, it's basically my life on speed. It's much, much crazier on my life. I've never taken speed, so I don't know what I'm talking about here. But the idea is that I talked to some friends about I wanted to write another fiction book. I do mostly factual books, but I so love exploring fiction. And I think this is my sixth novel. And this person just said, just write about your life, but fictionalize it. Make it much more than it actually is. Not that there's anything wrong with my life, but one of the characters in the book is based on Susie Crockford, the shaman. that She calls herself a witch, and that's perfectly acceptable here in Devon. She lives in a lovely witch's cottage, and she does uh, journeying work, taking people down into the underworld and up into the heavens, and she's amazing. So I put her in the book, and I put so many aspects of my own life, like the cooking, <laughs> the books full of recipes as well. <laughs> like, well, not so much recipes, but little tips, because Bella is a cook like I am. Um, but she has a far more dynamic life than I do. But the point of the Blue Panda is that many years ago, 14 years ago now, we, my husband and I had a friend called John, and the Blue Panda driver, Bella's brother in the book, is called John. And John was murdered in London. And he was just a beautiful spiritual man and he always drove this tiny little blue panda. He was a big man over six feet tall and he was always crushing himself into this blue panda and we always had this joke that the blue panda was sort of immortal and we wanted to bury him in his blue panda at the funeral because it was almost small enough to do that. So when I got the idea for this, I just thought, well, let's involve John in it. Let's involve the original John, John Taylor, in his blue panda as the means by which Bella goes to the afterlife and does her work. And I'm so blessed. It's dedicated to Ariadne, who's John's granddaughter. (laughs) Sorry, I'm choking up on this. Um, because he was such a dear friend. And Ariadne is such a gorgeous little girl. She's six years old now, and she lives in Cyprus. And I hope the book will sort of um, be a a memory for her, the grandfather she never got to see. I've got lots of stuff in water in my astrological chart. I'm a a mess when I talk about stuff that (laughs) I'm emotional about. But it's, it's sort of beautiful that you can bring a story about real people that you've loved, put them in fiction and know that they, they live on. It really is. It's almost like a, a magical way to keep them alive 
and something that she can read, you know, years down the road, he'll, he'll always be there. And, you know, I was wondering, I mean, and you say that, <laughs> I, I think you're very interesting. I mean, I think your life is so interesting. <laughs> and I'm sure, you know, maybe someday we could have a, a cup of tea and, and chat about that, because I'm sure you have so many amazing stories from your BBC days, and then uh, becoming a minister or a vicar, uh, as you call in the book. And so I just wanted you to share a little bit with the listeners, you know, your your own upbringing or childhood that may have put you on this path? Like what, what drew you to the mystical and the magical? Oh, it's, it's just one of those things I think that is probably wired in you from the very beginning. I didn't know that I was into the mystical, the magical very much though. I loved the Narnia books and I loved books about fairies and magic. And I've, I've never been a shaman or anything like that. But when I was in church, when I was nine years old and we went every Sunday and I thought it was really rather boring, there was a point at which we were singing the Magnificat, which is where Mary, um, praises God for the fact that she's pregnant with the Christ child. And she starts, my soul shall magnify the Lord. And as I sang that, for some reason, something just shifted, some curtain opened, and there was this experience of presence. And I can only describe it by saying it was color I could taste, and it was beauty I could hear, and it was music that I could smell. It was an strange cacophony of something extraordinary, and I think it was an angel. And it just rested on me for a few seconds and said, you will do this. And I didn't know what it meant. It meant that my soul will magnify the Holy One, the Creator, of course. But at the time, I didn't know what it meant at all. And fortunately, I didn't tell anyone about it for a good 20 years because I was already quite aware that that kind of thing expressed in public to family or people at school was going to get sat on very, very firmly. But I always sort of held it in my heart and I was always really interested in the story around Mary and the story about the women in the New Testament, because back in those days, women couldn't be ministers. And that's only the last 30 years or so. And there was just something about the phrase, and Mary held these things and pondered them in her heart. That's in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, I think. I should, should have looked that up before I spoke to you. And it's just this wonderful aspect of the divine feminine. And I've done lots of research on this. I study with a lady called Dr. Margaret Barker, who is probably one of the most exciting theologians on the planet today because she's investigating the first temple of Judaism, which links back to all the sacred feminine teachings in Babylon and in the Far East and the Middle East. And she's actually able to show how it would appear that most of the New Testament is actually based on the teachings of those very ancient times when the feminine was of equal value and the feminine was incredibly important. And in the ancient teachings, you have the hunters going down into a cave, which represents the womb, the divine feminine, to ask permission to do the hunt. And if they did the rituals to the divine feminine and drew the animals on the walls, then they would be blessed in the hunt. And in those days, the feminine was thought to be the receiver of souls at death and the source of resurrection. The masculine was the sacrificial aspect 
And in ancient days, there were a lot of male sacrifices and sacrifices of boy children. And that's one of the reasons why the matrilineal line didn't continue. The second temple was very, very anti that kind of thing. And one can understand that. But in throwing out that aspect, they also threw out a lot of the deep feminine teaching. And if you're not happy with my using the word feminine, that's fine, because feminine is nothing to do with women. Men and women also carry masculine and feminine. We, we, so we can talk about yin and yang. And in this modern world of um, possessions and expansion and marketing and more and more and covetousness, the real problem we have is that there is a toxic yin energy that's supporting a toxic yang energy. And actually, we've got to go back to the divine feminine. We've got to go back into the darkness, if you like, to heal from that point, I think. And Margaret Barker's work is highlighting that that is in Christianity. For example, when Jesus uh, dies on the cross, and it doesn't matter whether you believe that this happened or not, it's a myth. It's a really important myth. And the idea of a myth is it is not an untruth. Nowadays, we think that a myth is an untruth, but it's a perennial truth. And you see the previous pattern in that Jesus is put in the tomb in a cave. So that takes us right back to the original uh, divine feminine teachings of the man descends into the cave. And the women, the Marys, wait. And we know from the uh, Gospel of John that it's Mary Magdalene who's the first person who sees the resurrected Christ. And so the teaching there is exactly the same as the ancient teaching, which is, is the feminine that is the source of the resurrection. And you can actually see that that's in the Gospels. And that, for me, just opens up Christianity in so many ways. And people love the Nag Hammadi scrolls and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and that kind of thing. And that's all very important, too, but it's still in the Bible. It's in the original teaching. It's hidden in plain sight. We just have to know how to look for it. Wow, that is so fascinating. And it really makes so much sense. And you, you mentioned, you bring that up also, kind of weave it into the book of the idea of that imbalance that we're experiencing. And it all kind of goes back to those teachings. And, uh, you know, I have read um, a lot recently about, you know, how the idea of Mary Magdalene and her story of, you know, the prostitute and all that, and even how the Pope, I believe, has changed that so that her her story Absolutely. is not you know it, marred with that she wasn't a prostitute no no she wasn't she wasn't even the woman with the alabaster jar and you know there have been whole books written about her being the woman with the alabaster jar who wiped jesus's feet with her hair that was mary of bethany she's actually identified in the gospel of john but one of the popes called gregory basically said there are too many Marys in the New Testament. It's all confusing. They're all Mary Magdalene and she was a whore. And it just sort of stuck. <laughs> but there's no basis for it in the actual Gospels whatsoever. And I'm just going to go off on a slight tangent here about this idea that Mary Magdalene was Jesus's wife. Lots of people talk about this and I flat out think that is an insult. To give her status as being Mrs. Jesus is patriarchy at its absolute worst. Mary Magdalene was most unlikely to be Jesus's wife. She wouldn't be called Mary Magdalene if she were Jesus's wife. She'd be Mary of Jesus. Um, women were only named after their town if they were widowed or divorced. So Mary of Magdala was probably a widow or a divorcee. And the Gospel of Lucy is very plain that she 
was one of the financial supporters of Jesus. And in those days, if she were his wife, everything she owned would have belonged to him. She could not have been an independent woman who supported him. And in the Gospel of um, James, one of the Nagamadi scrolls, there's this bit that Dan uh, Dan Brown used in the Da Vinci Code where he added in a word. The, the disciples are saying, uh, why do you love Mary more than us? Why do you kiss her on? And there's no word mouth there. There's a torn bit of that um, scrap of uh, papyrus that we've got. There's no mention of mouth. But he answers them and says, well, ask yourself why I don't love you as much as her. But what I always come back to with this when people say, do you think Mary Magdalene was Jesus's wife? I sort of go, well, no, for the simple reason that nobody has ever gone up to my husband and said, why do you love Maggie more than us and why do you kiss her? Because you wouldn't say that about right. somebody's <laughs> wife, would you? It's just Occam's razor as far as I'm concerned. She was a spiritual teacher in her own right. And in those days, you had to have women spiritual teachers because the Jewish faith had very serious laws of segregation. And the rabbi uh, could only teach the men. And there was a woman, probably the rabbi's wife, which is why they would have connected Mary with Jesus. But Jesus was very clear that he thought women were equal to men and he worked with women. Uh, the earliest scroll we've got, the very earliest fragment, the Euphrates scroll, is tiny, but it dates back to the first century. And it says quite clearly, the women and the wives of those who followed him. So the earliest texts we've got say there were women in the disciples. It, it's really so amazing how much was changed, right? And and rewritten and hidden and destroyed over the thousands of years. That's why it always amazes me when people, you know, take a literal interpretation of what's what's there right now. I just don't see how that's possible. Absolutely. But I guess that would be a whole that would be a whole other show. <laughs> it would. But the problem with Christianity started in about the year 303 when the Emperor Constantine adopted the faith. And he made it a religion about war and power, and he basically turned Jesus into Jupiter. And from then on, it became a religion that was about power. But the original teachings were never about that. And though I love all the alternate texts, all the Dead Sea Scrolls and all that, everything is still in the Gospels and it's hidden in plain sight. And that I find magical because it means you don't actually have to look that much further. Uh, you've got the aspect of the women. And also there are four Gospels and it's the Irenaeus, one of the first church fathers, said, there must be four Gospels because there is so much that is, cannot be written, so much magic and mystery in this, that we're going to limit it to four Gospels so that people seek the truth within themselves rather than looking for more texts. And the Gospels are representing the four courts of the temple, the first temple and the second temple. The first one represents the physical world, which is all of humanity, all of creation. The second gospel, Mark, represents the psychological world. That would have been the court of the women where the families went. The third gospel is the court of is the gospel of Luke, which is the spiritual world, which was the area the priests went into. And John the Divine is the gospel of the sanctuary, the holy of the holies. Only in the gospel of the divine does Jesus speak as Christ. In the others, he speaks as Jesus, who is 
also the Christ, but a human. But in the Gospel of John, where all the great I am sayings are, he's speaking as the cosmic Christ, the Christ that existed since the world began, the Christ that the Jewish faith knows as Adam Kadmon. And that is the blueprint of all creation. And if you look at the word Logos, which is in the beginning was the word in the Gospel of John. That's how it starts. In the beginning was the Logos. A far better interpretation of the ancient Greek is in the beginning was the blueprint of all creation. And I just think that's magical because it turns uh, Jesus from somebody whom everybody thinks is Jesus' surname Christ. You know, Jesus is the only representation of Christ's consciousness. And Jesus himself said before Abraham was I am. And I am is the name of God, the creator given to Moses. You see, there's just so much. I could just ramble on for hours about this. It's my utter passion. (laughs) Well, it is so, it is so fascinating. And I mean, I was, I was brought up Catholic and the one part of, you know, we had to learn the Nicene Creed and there was always that line that I wondered about, you know, I am the, the creator of heaven and earth. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but there's a line that says the creator of all that is seen and unseen and that part always interested me. What did he mean by that? What what was the unseen? And whenever I would ask about it, and there was one particular um, nun in the CCD classes, Sister Hyacinth, and I would always ask Sister Hyacinth these mm-hmm. questions, and she never really gave a, a specific answer on that. You know, what is that part? The seen and the unseen. But the fact that it's recognized means that it's there, right? That it must exist. Absolutely. And Catholicism so does just, <laughs> venerate the Virgin yeah. Mary too. They don't worship her. They've still held some of the feminine in there. Well, I would say the unseen is the angels, the spirits, the souls, the whole universe. And Most of it's unseen. That you, that you, it is. And I mean, and I love how you bring up these concepts in the book, in the Tales of the Blue Panda. And so just I mean, we have, a, we have a few minutes before the break here, but I just wanted to get into this part because we're talking about the unseen and, you know, our, our heroine, Bella Ransom, um, in the beginning of the book, she realizes that she's dead and she comes to realize that she is in that, that unseen world, that in-between world, and she has a job to do, and, and we'll get into that a, a little bit more as well, where she's tasked with retrieving lost souls. But I have so many questions, you know, about that in-between world and that space, I mean, do you you believe that there is a space that we go before we continue on to our next consciousness or or wherever we go after that? But there is there a way station? I guess in Catholicism, it might have been called a purgatory. It might but well where, have been. What is that in-between place? I don't know. I mean, this is a novel. It's fiction. I just wrote what came into my head, but you know perfectly well that stuff comes into your head. But I have studied a fair amount of Buddhism, and the Buddhists have the bardo, which is three days after death, during which you battle your own demons. You're presented with the demons of your life, and your task is to realize this is me. This is nothing external. This is all my own fears. And once you realize that, you can move move through. But the Buddhist teachings say that the majority of souls, particularly new souls, are just terrified by the demons, run away from them and incarnate again immediately rather than to have to face them. So what I was doing was melding the Buddhist bardo with the C.S. Lewis story of the magician's nephew, where there is a world between worlds. And Throughout Bella's story, she's given images from her own life that she would understand. And I think that would be what 
when you go through to the other other world, when you do die, you will be given images that you understand because otherwise it would be just too terrifying. So Bella is really in the the wood between the worlds uh, from the magician's nephew. It isn't exactly that, but that's how it's presented to her because it's a concept that she's familiar with so she can navigate it. So, so somewhat like a bardo, like you described, but not so much, I guess my concept of purgatory is like a, a punishment in a way before the decision is made to send you where you're supposed to go. Well, it's meant but, to be a clean is- cleansing place. Purgatory was always the place of cleansing. And it's thought of as a place of judgment, but it's actually from all my understanding of all the traditions I've studied, it's a place where you come to realize your part in what you've done in your life without your ego, without any of your justifications, any of your family squabbles. You just see clearly what you did. And that would be terrifying and really distressing for folk who've lived a nasty life because they will have all their excuses removed from them. So for them, it would be hellish. Uh, Hopefully for most of it, it will just be somewhat uncomfortable. (laughs) Just somewhat, a little Mm -hmm. little bit bit uncomfortable. Or or as I kind of imagine it, I don't know, have you ever seen the movie with Meryl Streep and Albert Brooks, Defending Your Life? No, but I it's, must. It's one, it's one of my favorite. Yes, you must. You must. It's one of my favorite movies. And he he spends some time in a place called Judgment City where he must defend his life and he sees different um, parts of his life, kind of like Bella where she wakes up and she's a younger age and then she wakes up and she's an older age. Mm-hmm. And I think we do. I think maybe we do see that. Like you're saying, it's a familiar were shown familiar images so that we don't totally freak out and be terrified of of what's happening. It's it's just so interesting. But we're going to talk more about some of the other concepts in this fascinating book. I'm just having so much fun with it. I was telling Maggie before we started taping that I'm I'm about halfway through and I can't wait to see what's going to happen with Bella and where she's going and coming back from and and the things that she's learning. It's so amazing. So if you haven't um, checked out Maggie's website, definitely do so maggiewhitehouse.com and also pick up the book. It's an ebook, I believe right now. Is that right? It's not in out as well. I've got a physical copy in front of me now. So yes, it's on all the usual outlets. And in the USA, I think you would probably be best getting it via Amazon, though. Please, please go to your independent local bookshop if you can go out at the moment, because independent local bookshops really need our help. Yes, shop local. Look for Tales of the Blue Panda. We'll be right back after this short break. Thanks for listening. Practical spirituality. Positive messages. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, the Diane Ray Show. 
Thanks for coming back and joining me. I'm Diane Ray talking with Maggie Whitehouse about her new book, Tales of the Blue Panda. Maggie is an independent minister, stand-up comedian, workshop leader, and author. And this is her latest work, a magical tale through space and time, and really a lot of fun. So we're talking about some of the concepts that you share in the book. And uh, before the break, we were talking a little bit about the in-between space where Bella finds herself um, in the throughout the book, kind of coming and going between this in-between space, not really like like a purgatory, but, but maybe somewhat (laughs) there's, there's so many great themes, you know, to talk about, but I wanted to ask, I mean, you said, you know, obviously Bella is, is a lot of you. I mean, and in the story, it, it goes to explain, she suffered a lot of loss early in life. And I know you can, I'm sure you can relate to that personally. I mean, we, we've all gone through loss, but was a lot of that from personal experience, Yes, what, what you share about Bella. Yes, one of my best friends was the first man to die from AIDS in the area of the UK where I lived. Uh, and that was terrifying because we didn't uh, understand uh, what was going on there. I wasn't allowed within six feet of Pete while he was ill. So it was almost like social distancing now. And we were all just terrified. We didn't know what was going on. I wasn't allowed to be a blood donor because I was a friend of his and nobody knew you know, what, how it could be contracted. So that was pretty much the first serious bereavement. And my first husband died too. He died from cancer. We were married one year and 16 days, half of our married life, he was dying. So yes, I've come very close to death, and I uh, I conducted John Taylor's funeral, and I became a funeral celebrant. That's an odd word for a funeral um, minister before I was ordained, and I do. Uh, I worked in a hospice as a voluntary chaplain for a few years. So death has always been wanting to become my friend. I used to run from it right, left and centre, but it kept on showing up. And strange little things would happen to me, like at Pete's funeral where the uh, crematorium was packed uh, and uh, we everybody was sitting there crying. And I just sat and I just saw Pete in a choir of angels telling me, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm free, I'm happy. And I was sitting there with this great big grin on my face until somebody practically clouted me over the head saying inappropriate behavior. But I just thought how wonderful it would be if everybody could see that. And I thought maybe I was making it up. And all my life, I've always said, what if I'm making this up? What if this is just rubbish? What if it's... um, just ridiculous. And the answer is you have to behave as if you trusted spirit. So you just have to speak up when you can and say, my experience is that there is life after death and there is glory after death. And also because I'm a trained minister in the independent Catholic church, my seminary, my bishop insisted on training me in exorcism before ordination because They said there are souls that get lost. There are souls that attach themselves to other people. Most of them are not evil. Most of them are just lost. People who've died in um, shocking circumstances like murder or in war. And sometimes the souls don't know that they're dead. 
So I've been trained to be able to pick up if I get a hitchhiker, and sometimes you can because just the scenario my bishop taught us with was basically um, – this is going back to other books. Have you ever read Terry Pratchett? Have you, Diane? No, no, I haven't. Okay, well, there's a death character in the Terry Pratchett Discworld novels who is who's one of the heroes of anybody who reads them. But in all the death uh, scenarios, when somebody dies, they go, they end up in a desert, and death says, "Walk, and you'll find what you will find." And uh, the bishop taught us that basically. If you're in a desert and you don't know where you're going after death and somebody who's human can see you, then you're going to cling to them because you're going to feel lost. And this is happening more and more because we are so secular, we're not expecting life after death. So a lot of people, I think, who die in difficult circumstances don't even know they're dead. And there are wow. many you know, people. I never thought. Mm, go on. I, I'm just I'm just surprised, <clears throat> excuse me, of that a bishop so in so in the book you know the concept of soul retrieval i thought that that was more like an, an eastern philosophy or a native american philosophy but i'm just i'm just interested i'm surprised that you're telling me that a bishop actually taught you that 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 was possible well he is a so, very unusual so bishop He's an amazing man. He's called David Goddard, and I really recommend you interview him. He's just written a book called Restoring Eden, which is actually how to talk to nature spirits and how to harness the energy of nature spirits for healing our planet. So he's a very unusual bishop. Uh, his best-selling book is called Sacred Magic of the Angels. Um, and he was a Catholic priest. He became a liberal Catholic bishop. And he has always been um, very, very disciplined, very discerning, very fierce, actually. And if you are invited for ordination in his church, which is a total secret church, you won't find a website for it, you are taught that you are down and dirty in this business. You will do requiem for people who have died in difficult circumstances. You will check out whether they are through in spirit and you will do the work that is difficult because so many people nowadays are funeral celebrants or vicars, vicars who aren't, aren't taught this kind of thing. Whereas in the ancient days, people were taught this. They were, because we had the difficult aspects of religion, which said, oh, you're going to hell if you're not a Christian. People quite often believed that they weren't going to hell. They weren't going to heaven if they weren't a Christian. And there was always a sort of under undercurrent in the Catholic faith of priests who did the work in the Shadowlands because there were people who just missed the boat, if you like. If you want to go back to ancient Greece, there's, there's Charon, the uh, man who takes you across the river Styx to the underworld. And that's where missing the boat came from. You didn't get on the boat with Charon because you didn't have the coin to give him for your passage to the afterlife. And all these myths are perennial truth. There's a real mystery and magic in them. And we humans, when we were much simpler living beings. We sat round the fire at night and we exchanged stories and we honoured the ancestors and we spoke with the ancestors. And in this modern world, we've lost so much of that magic. And it is, oddly, in the heart of Christianity. But it's only in the heart of Christianity if you have a bishop who's also a mystic or something like that. But 
in the old days when um, Catholics still believed that if you died before you were baptized, you went into limbo, or if you were a suicide, you went into limbo, which was a perpetual in-between world, the world that Bella went into, then you would never get to heaven. But there were always priests who thought, no, you do, but you might need a little bit of help, so let's see what we can do. And even when I lived back in Birmingham, uh, which is a big a big multicultural city in the United Kingdom, not Birmingham, Alabama, Birmingham, United Kingdom. There was a Catholic priest there who found out um, who I was through my work in the hospice who would quietly come to me and say, this is a suicide. I can now do the funeral, but can you just check in? So even the Orthodox Catholic Church will sometimes talk to the mystical Catholic Church and these things go on in secret, and they're meant to go on in secret. You're not meant to be able to go to a website and jump on the, the bandwagon, as it were, because this is serious, deep work, and you've got to be deep cleansed each time you do soul retrieval work. But I just wanted to highlight it through the Blue Panda story and make it funny and make it accessible, just to say to people, there is life after death. We do have responsibilities, and let's encourage people to when they go to a funeral to just say are you okay look here's a bridge and here's your angel coming to you and people will just go but I'm making it up and I'm going well you have to act as if you trusted spirit do it anyway right act as if you know over the years I've spoken to so many people who are mediums to varying degrees of of success, <laughs> I think, or varying, varying levels of ability. There's really maybe only been one or two to, that I think were really able to um, kind of pierce that, that veil. And it's so interesting. I've sat in so many demonstrations. And the one question people always ask, first of all, is, is my loved one okay? Are they okay? Mm-hmm. People are so worried about persecution or, or pain or fear yeah. After we leave this world, you know, after we leave this realm. And that leads me to another question, too, about so in in the book, the character of John, which is her brother, he's a major character in the book. He's explaining to Bella the work of soul retrieval and that there are dark forces or demonic forces that are against that work that you're just describing, that that secretive really fascinating work that that's being done. And, you know, honestly, over the years, like I've had conflicting ideas of the concept of Satan, you Mm. know, or the devil. And I mean, I think there are definitely evil people in the world, but I don't know if, if there is such a place as hell or a character with horns and a pitchfork. No, I don't think there is. The Bible talks about the tester. Satan in the Bible is the tester, and and the legend is that he is Lucifer, who is the greatest of the angels, but who would not um, worship humanity, who wasn't pleased that God had created another creature, which God said was superior to the angels because it had free will. Archangels have a certain amount of free will. Angels have no free will. They are completely predicated on one job. That's what they do. And in the book, I try and make that clear by making it clear that angels don't chat. A angel just does a job. It does one job and it does that job perfectly, whereas we human beings multitask and that kind of thing. So the legend is that Lucifer flew away from heaven 
and would rather serve in hell than um, would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. But if you look at all the ancient texts and things, there, there is no actual hell. There is the under underworld, the afterlife. And even in um, the Gospels, when they call it hell, it's Gehenna, which is basically the rubbish heap. That's what it means in Greek. It doesn't necessarily mean a place of eternal torment. It just means somewhere where you really would rather not be. Um, and I think the whole tenet of the book is to say that hell is in your own mind. Hell is in your hatred and your self-destruction and your focus on misery. Because when we die, if we don't slough that off through the bardo or the in-between worlds, then we can get trapped in a kind of in-between world. And that is what limbo is. It means that we've trapped ourselves in our psyches because we're not ready to let go and embrace the true beauty and glory of our soul. And I think that's what all the ancient stories were trying to say. But of course, it got politicized, as in you don't believe in what we believe, then you're going to hell. And that is just power games. So most of what we've been taught about hell is a power game, which is you don't join our tribe, then you're damned for eternity. But there's no there's no goodness in that. There is, on the other hand, goodness in the thought of a tester, somebody who comes along and says, okay, are you ready to go up to the next grade of school? We're going to give you an exam. As above, so below. So the job of the tester is just to say, are you ready for this? Are you ready to do this work? Are you actually going to have the discipline to take care of yourself to do this work? Because if you're not, I'm going to make you crash and burn. Because if you haven't for a start learned humility, you are not worthy to approach the throne of God. Um, it's not that you're not worthy to approach the throne of God. It's just that if you haven't got humility to realize that you know nothing, you're going to go in there with all these opinions about this religion is right and that religion is wrong. And I think that the hinterland area is just to make you wake up and realize that God loves creation, all of creation. God loves slugs. God loves quince trees. God loves robins. God loves, God loves Donald Trump just as much as he loves me. God may be looking at Donald right. Trump in some amazement, but God loves <laughs> Donald Trump because God loves and really, everyone. Well, I would, and I was going to ask God as... Because to me, I think now, as I've gotten a little older, I mean, when I was younger, God was more like a, you know, you kind of anthropomorphized it, I guess is the word, mm. you know, he became a, a physical idea of what I thought it would look like. But but now I think of it as more like uh, the quantum field or a force or like, you know, the force in Star Wars, I guess, would be the easiest way to describe it, but yet still has an intelligence. Yes. I love that. I don't know. I, I mean, guess that's I, I how believe I kind of- Sorry, I'm interrupting you. No, it's okay. I just said that's how kind of how I have the like the concept of it. But I also wanted to ask too, as far as you know, like dark forces or or that there's no hell or anything. Don't don't you think there has to be a, a balance? Does there ha does evil exist without good or good without evil? Well, it depends what you think is evil. Our, our problem is we act from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So we judge things as good and bad every day. We are still eating from that tree every single day. And one of the things in the Garden of Eden that we don't recognize is the fact that we think 
I mean, this is just this is a myth. It's an important myth, but there's a couple of things to point out about it, which is that if the divine is in everything, it isn't an external god saying, "Don't eat from this tree." It's the spirit of the tree, and we humans take from nature whatever we want whenever we want. And one of the things about the honourable harvest of the Native American people, there's the most wonderful book called Braiding Sweetgrass by uh, Robin Waller something, I can't remember her surname now, which talks about the honourable harvest, about you never take a crop until the crop is willing to let you take it. You have to ask. And that just takes us straight back to this idea of Eden. Maybe the tree said, I'm not ready for you to pick from me. And that changes the whole thing. But what they did was they picked from it and then they judged. And when the Elohim, that's the divine feminine, Elohim is a feminine noun with a masculine plural ending. And it's the Elohim, the feminine, the goddess who creates the universe. Yahweh, the male god, only turns up with the advent of of humanity. It it doesn't exist before then. And the Elohim says to the man, why are you hiding from me? Did you eat from that tree? And he goes, it was the woman. She gave me the fruit. And then the Elohim says to Eve, did you eat from the tree? And she says, it was the serpent. He gave me the fruit. So the fall, if there was a fall, is not about the disobedience, because I'm quite sure God is quite big enough to know that humanity is going to disobey. It's the blame. That's the source of evil. Right. Is the blame. And we see this in our, and it's also the toxic yin in our world today is this need to blame, blame, blame. And once you have an energy of blame, it's a dark energy, it's a nasty energy. And if you have enough human beings who are participating in it, it becomes a, an etheric force, an entity. And that is what we would call a demon. Wow. Okay. No, I like that. That that makes total sense. Mind you, I have to say now, Dan, I have to say to everybody, do not believe a word I say. I'm only telling (laughs) you my truth, what I've perceived from my experience. This is my planet I live on, and I might be talking utter rubbish for you. And that's fine. It might be utter rubbish. Test it out. Test it out. Don't just believe me. Well, I like exploring these ideas and coming up with what what feels right and and like you said you know what would be my truth mm. um as may may differ you know slightly from from what yours is but i think it's it's so cool that we can talk about that and exchange these ideas and i, I wanted to ask you too cuz you had mentioned angels um you know coming up in our conversation earlier and we haven't really explored a little bit about that um, the concept of angels or some characters of angels in the book. And, and this I thought was interesting. At one point in the book, the character Sam, the angel, tells Bella, it's not what happens to us, but our responses to it that creates our experiences in life. And I love that because I lo- it contradicts the old saying, everything happens for a reason. I always, I always hated that. I, mm. I always questioned that. Really? Is there some kind of reason for everything? Couldn't there be just some horrible earthquake that happened through no fault of anyone's or, you know, and any other disaster. I don't think there was necessarily, there may have been a physical geological reason, you know, for those things that happen. It doesn't have to be mystical, but I've always thought that it was our interpretation of what happens to something, I, you I, know, not something happening to us, I guess. Yeah, I concur. Caroline Mace, the great spiritual teacher, says that people so often get stuck in needing a reason 
There's got to be a reason why this happened. And when I've worked out the reason, I'll be okay with it. So I think we do get stuck in that. And that's how we get into what she calls woundology, which is, I don't have my reason yet. I don't have this reason. Until I have a reason, I can't get better. You know, because if I've got a reason, then I can seek a solution. But I think a lot of stuff does just happen. And how we respond to it is is absolutely everything. People said to me, when Henry, my first husband, died, you must be so angry. You must be, it's not fair. Don't you want to know why? You know, is it karmic? Is it this? And I went, well, it, it just happened. You know, some people die of cancer. Uh, I'm sure there was a reason for Henry to die of cancer. His lifestyle wasn't absolutely brilliant. But why did it have to happen to me? I don't know. It just did. But what can we do with it? Right. I don't think that, you know, like you said, people need to have a reason. And sometimes they'll come up, well, it was God's will, or this is the way it was supposed to be, or or that kind of thing. And Mm. and that always felt just false or, or trite, you know, that, well, there's some reason. But I loved when Sam said that in the book. I thought, yes, <laughs> I agree. I agree with that character 100%. And also in the book, which I loved was, I mean, there's a lot of accounts of, I guess, what you would think a near-death experience would be. And you know, you touch on what some people have said about the afterlife and the experience of transitioning. And some of those ideas I think are so fascinating. Like there is no concept of time as we know it, like a linear time. And you can transport or wherever you put your awareness on is where you will be. And I've read a lot of books on people's accounts of their near-death experiences. Um, One in particular, an author I had worked with, her name's Anita Morjani, and she wrote a book called Dying to Be Me. And she describes this exactly, just how you've kind of woven it into the story of the book. And I just wondered, have you ever had a near-death experience? No. <laughs> no, I haven't. But I sat with people who were dying. And I've observed that they saw spirits or angels and spoke to them. And so, no, and I haven't read Anita's book either. Uh, she's an amazing woman. And she recovered from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I also had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And everybody said, oh, you must read, read Anita Majani's book. And I never did, because Anita was pulled back from the absolute brink. She was on the point of death. And I thought, I really don't want to read a book where I'm not going to get through this until I'm on the point of death. So I have to admit, I was a bit resistant to the book, but I have heard such wonderful things about it. And I know she's been, she's a great teacher for many, many people. I, I also wrote a book on uh, about my experience with, with cancer, which is known as Kabbalah and healing, but it sort of takes the healing a little bit earlier on in the process. <laughs> that's all. But Nanita's amazing. And I'm quite sure that her experience is, is the most valid one you're going to be able to read nowadays. I mean, just the way she describes um you you really should read it now especially now for writing yeah. this <laughs> because there's so many things that are very um you know that would would jive completely with what what you were writing especially the idea of you, you know what where you put your awareness is where you will be and just that there is that there is no time and i think that's true why would there be time and really isn't time just a human construct if you think about it but my father we had said- come up with clocks 
Yeah, my <laughs> father always said we invented time with the coming of the railways. Up until then, it was I'll meet you in the third quarter of the moon. But I, once the railway turned up, I'll meet you at eleven oh five and catch that train. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, before it was it was so different. So I think that's so interesting. So we just have a few minutes left. I mean, I could just chat with you all day long. And into the night, I'm sure. Um, but I know you've probably got things to do, <laughs> so we can't we can't do that, unfortunately. Um, but I did want to ask, you know, in the book, Abella has a love interest in the bishop, and I mean, do you believe that love continues on in other forms after we leave these bodies? In other forms, yes, but. It's quite clear, I think, from Jesus' teaching that you don't retain your gender at death. Because I believe in reincarnation and we incarnate in different sexes. And I don't think your soul actually has a specific gender. It's fluid. And I think one of the reasons why we're seeing so much uh, transgender and gay issues coming out at the moment is because we have more people coming in who are fluid. And they're fluid in their incarnation. And this is to point something out to us, that it's not just male and female. There's more to it. I don't think you can have sex after death. I'm really sorry about that because I really enjoy it. But on the other hand... When I die and my um, husband, my current husband, current husband, hopefully the, the only other husband of this life, I'm going to enjoy being with Henry after I die and I'm going to enjoy still being with Lion after I die and I'm going to enjoy being with boyfriends I had after I die. But none of us are going to think, oh, she's having sex with him or that because I think you transcend it and I don't think that's a problem because I'm a trained healer. I trained um, with the National Federation of Spiritual Healers in the United Kingdom and did the whole Reiki uh, thing years ago when it was still very expensive. When I started practicing as a healer, when I was channeling the healing, because I never healed anyone, it was I was a channel, I could feel as ecstatic as orgasm while channeling. And I'm sure that that is the energy that's available to us in heaven. Exactly. I look forward to that. Maggie, it's been so wonderful to talk with you about these themes and these ideas. I just love it. And the book is magical, Tales of the Blue Panda. And I hope you check it out at your local bookstore at amazon.com. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.